Hey, y'all, how's it going? I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Lucky for you, I didn't watch the debate last night. Saw a little bit of coverage on Twitter. I watched a tiny bit at the beginning, and then I decided, you know what, if I can't see Donald Trump push down Jeb Bush and make him cry, then um, I don't really care. I'm spoiled now. I really just want to see Jeb Bush with his quivering bottom lip and tears welling up, trying hard to choke it back. Don't cry, Jebby. Don't cry. Uh, without Trump there to pick on him, it just ain't the same, you know? Anyway. Uh, so lucky for you, I'm not going to talk about the debate. I don't think. Oh, except here's the part that I did see at the very beginning was, um, uh, Brett Baer asked Rand Paul, man, you're doing real bad. And then I think he misquoted Ron. I think, I think it was unfair the way he said, um, well, he said, at the beginning of the campaign, he really phrased the question wrong. At the beginning of the campaign, you said, I'm my own man. So he didn't, he, he said something Rand said, not all of the vast deviations on foreign policy, especially between him and his father. But that's what he meant to say. And then he misquoted Ron as saying, oh, it's very reasonable to think that Donald Trump will be the nominee. He did say that, but only in that Ron Paulian way where he's such a nice guy that pretty much no matter what questioner asks him anything, he never contradicts them. He always tries to be yeah, like the the, the uh, criminal uh, criminologist was saying on the show the other day. Midwest nice, they call it. Where you get yeah, you know, uh, try to concede as much, you know, as you can. How to win friends and influence people, right? That's Donald Trump. Well, no, I guess don't ask him. Ask somebody else. It's a different spin on the same same thing, I guess. But. Ron goes, yeah, I guess it's reasonable, but not. And then the rest of his answer was, no way, Rand is great, blah, da, 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 da. So he didn't really say the the way Brett Baer tried to make it sound like Ron had forsaken Rand, which would have been fair play, but was not, I don't think, accurate. But the real point was, should have been, and it was still sort of underlying the idea, that he's really sold out his father's awesome positions, and he hasn't really benefited from it, and so was it the right thing to do or not. And he just gave some crappy answer. I, it was, uh, I don't even remember what he said. <laughs> it was, that was how memorable it was. Something about, yeah, well, I don't know. I guess I'm pretty good or something. And at least I'm not Ted Cruz or something. But anyway, the real answer is that he could have said he's his own man. Sure. That's fine. But, it was a political choice to try to pander to every horrible faction inside the Republican Party in order to please them, which he had no chance of doing, instead of trying to lead them in any way, make them better in any way, by, you know, carrying forward his father's principles and and lessons and whatever. He just, you know, and I said this years ago, uh, years and years ago on Facebook, I said he's trying to be everything to everyone. He's going to end up being nothing to nobody. And he's going to go down in flames because, you know, even all you people who pretend to still believe, you know, convince yourselves that he's secretly Ron in disguise or whatever, eventually you're going to, you know, drop it. 
And so it's certainly no persuasion on my part. It's just Rand has been horrible on a lot of very important things. And so all of Ron's supporters who were very happy to believe, to want to believe that, you know, in him and that he would uh, carry the revolution forward, you know, just gave up. As the correct answer to the question was, yes, I really blew it, Brett. Really bad. And now look at me. <laughs> Barely beaten Jeb. <laughs> Tied with Jeb. Low T Jeb. Who's already been pantsed and defeated in this thing. I'm sorry. I just love watching Trump make fun of Jeb. It's hilarious. I just hate the Bushes so damn much. They're responsible for so much. And I was so sure that Jeb was just going to walk into this thing. You know, that he would outlast all the rest of the Republicans. And then, of course, beat Hillary because she is just the worst candidate ever. And uh, and I just thought it was just a fact, just a scientific proof we'd be stuck with Jeb. But then uh, Trump came and uh, turned that apple cart upside down. And I don't prefer Trump. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... I like watching Trump almost make Jeb cry. And I'm looking for the day when he actually makes him cry. And I bet it's coming. I guess I'm afraid to bet money because I don't have any money. But if I had any money, I would be willing to bet money that at some point Trump is going to make fun of Jeb so bad that Jeb is going to start sputtering and have actual literal tears in his eyes. It's just a prediction. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that shit's great. But anyway, so, yeah, just think about if Rand had done, I mean, what was Ron's flaw, right? Ron's flaw was he wouldn't go after these guys. He he would teach peace and liberty, great. But he wouldn't say, let me tell you about Mitt Romney, all right? He doesn't believe in peace and liberty. He believes in this, this, and that. What a kook. But what if Ron had had that um, master persuader thing of uh, of Donald Trump's? You know, where he really pushed the salesmanship of Ron Paul, true American freedom. Everybody else, they're just arguing about how to spend your money, how to waste your money, killing people, making you enemies, and blah, 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 blah. I'm the only one who really cares about you, and all that Trumpian stuff. If Ron had had that kind of PR behind his libertarian message, right? Oh, I'm not a hero on a white horse. I'm a kind old man, you know, walking in my sneakers. I just want to repeal things, not not seize the reins of total power, just abolish it. Uh, that was what Rand was supposed to do, right? Rand was supposed to be young Ron with the same policy, but a more of a willingness to tangle about it and a longer future ahead of him in politics, you know? That goofy perma his is still brown, after all. And just completely dropped the ball. Greatest opportunity, I think, probably in all of human history to to spread the Enlightenment, right? To get people interested in reason. <laughs> you know, there's some benefits to it. Maybe, I don't know, could be overrated, but... Uh, yeah, I liked it. I, I liked the possibility. I I I still am the biggest Ron Paul fan in the whole wide world and and it it just absolutely pains me that Rand apparently cannot see 
What an opportunity. He's passing by, right? It's like there's this giant fork in the road, and he's just not paying attention and just went the stupid way. Wasted. Uh, uh, such a great chance. What a kook. Anyway, like, and here's another example of it. This great article... In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it on the other side of this break. But this is the kind of thing that Rand could be saying and picking a fight with the rest of the Republicans about it, right? Getting into a fight with them about it. And uh, the article is, why are there so many misconceptions about Muslim Americans? And I actually sent an email to the guy. I guess I should have called him. It was short notice. Uh, But it's this really great article about how Americans who know Muslims aren't afraid of them. Americans who know Muslims only through listening to politicians accuse them of things on TV are scared to death. But the solution is the slightest bit of truth. You know, there are millions of American Muslims and they're your neighbors. Or at least, you know, they live in towns nearby you or something. And they're clearly not at war with you. They're just trying to live their life the same as you. But anyway, uh, more like that when we get back from the break. It's the Scott Horton Show. Oh, and did I say I got three great interviews coming up, too? Hey, all Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Huh. Obama is... uh. Now, what is this a new law? He's going to do this by executive order. It's uh, the new Female Unemployment Act to encourage American businesses to fire and or not hire females because they'll be forced to pay them more than what they'd be worth in the market for their labor. Brilliant. Yeah, it must be really fun to be a liberal. Yeah, you know what we'll do? We'll make the minimum wage $15 an hour, and then we'll just squeeze our eyes real tight and imagine that everyone who has a job now is going to get that raise and not get fired. And that they're, whatever businesses are going to continue hiring at the same rates as before at the new higher prices. What we'll do is we'll just not consider that because then we'll realize how stupid it is to make it a crime for somebody to try to employ somebody else for less than $15 per hour. Jesus Christ. I mean, seriously, man. You don't have to be a born millionaire, cold-blooded, greedy, heartless, top-hat-wearing capitalist to understand that that is stupid. (laughs) You know? Uh Let's see, I wonder if there's a reason why women make less 
for the same job, supposedly anyway, according to the stats, if you buy them on the market, it must just be sexism, right? Prejudice and exploitation and yeah, huh? You got, I hate to go all Walter Block on you or whatever, but it's pretty simple math, isn't it? Huh. How come the other firms aren't scooping up all these talented women at still less of a price, but a little bit more than what they're being held back at by all the sexists? They could kick everybody's ass in the marketplace, right? Put all that manpower to use there, huh? Or can you call it manpower? Is that sexist to call it manpower? I don't have the 2016 Newspeak Dictionary Edition yet, but it's coming. Yeah. Anyway. Hey, listen. I read every blog entry going back for the whole month of January at Scott Adams' blog. And I got to admit, no offense, Scott, if you're a new listener to the show or something, I doubt it. I interviewed him, so I guess it's possible. Never really was a big fan of the cartoon. And it just doesn't make me laugh. It's not my experience, you know? Uh, but anyway, whatever, that's cool. And, and like I told you yesterday, I don't mind that his politics are basically absolutely run of the mill. In fact, I think it's better for his purpose. He's just has, has a, a, a very narrow focus on the art of persuasion, the science of it. And it's great. So I read, I don't know, 25 or 30 or something blog entries or something last night going back over this. And he absolutely has me convinced of one thing, and that is that Trump is absolutely unstoppable in this election. In fact, according to uh, Scott Adams, he says, quite a while before the election, you will see people on TV, news anchors, doing the Freudian slip and already calling him President Trump. And by, you know, within, you know, a month of the campaign, it'll already be conventional wisdom that he is running unopposed, basically. That he will win with a landslide of 64% or some incredible number. And a huge part of that, of course, is because of Hillary Clinton's weaknesses, which she has so many. But, you know, look, the deal is this. I've told you this before. I took social psychology class in junior college because I'm such a paranoiac. And I don't like being persuaded. Right? I want to decide for myself, I think, anyway, or something. So, I don't want tricks to work on me. But everybody else in that class was there to learn how to be a better salesman. To learn how to better manipulate people. And hey, that's how the system works, right? It's not even thought of as creepy or immoral or anything. It's just the science of how to get people to think and feel how you want. Now... I think those of you who are regular listeners to this show know that I don't use these tricks. I don't have tricks. I really, I didn't really memorize what all the different games are or whatever. I just try to be as reasonable as I can and hope that my kind of background education in this stuff, you know, helps to inoculate me a little bit. I did read Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, back many years ago, and it all just seemed like common sense. Like, if you're arguing with someone who you're really trying to win over, you ought to concede as much of their argument as you can. That, Like, dude, you're totally right that this, this, and that, but you got to understand the part that you're missing is this, right? And then that way, maybe you can bring them along and make it not sting so bad when they got to change their mind or whatever. But I think I already knew that, right? I didn't... 
But this is that same kind of persuasion, only on such a much higher level. Or, I mean, and it's disgusting. It's, it's infuriating. It makes me want to quit, really. I mean, his point is there is no reason. There is no reason. Human beings, all adults, they're nothing but a bunch of tall children. And if you hit them in their feels, then you can make them do whatever you want, at least on the margin, and a big enough margin that it makes the difference. And so in this case, he's just saying, what he's saying, and I was just talking about this with Ernie Hancock on his show an hour ago, hour and a half ago, um, about how it's not just that he's pretty good at this from life experience being a businessman. He is practiced in the science of how you manipulate people. And if you heard Scott Adams on the show, the first thing he said was, I'm a trained hypnotist. I'm a master at persuading people. I am educated in the science of persuasion. And I'm telling you, Trump is just like me, only way better at it. And if you read, I think if you just read Scott Adams' blog, you will have to agree with him. That as he put it on CNN, the first thing that turned me on to his point of view here, I saw him on CNN say that Trump has brought a flamethrower to a stick fight. And the rest of these guys think they have a chance or something, but just forget it. They don't even know what hit them. They have no idea what they're up against here when it comes to his brand of BS and how good he is at making you think you agree or like it or whatever. And even though he's a bastard, you'll find it meaning he's very uncaring and unempathetic, right? But as you get to know him over time, you see that he's not really that dangerous, right? He's not Mussolini. He's Berlusconi or whatever, right? You start, you know, you start, um, you start to see just with the consistency of him that even though he's, if you, or if you're not the type that likes him, you'll at least see that even though he's not charming, that he's not really a psycho. He's just appealing to the psychos with some of that stuff he says. <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, it'll blow your mind and it'll entertain you, and it's it's great, and I like it. And uh, it's at Dilbert uh, blog dot com. It's the guy that does the Dilbert cartoon, Scott Adams. Really brilliant stuff. I hope you'll read it. And I'm interested in it, so that's why I'm talking about it. And I think he's right. And and I've been telling y'all forever. That the Democrats are damn fools to think that Hillary Clinton is a winner. Like, maybe she's got them all by the balls and everybody owes her all these favors and all these things or whatever. But if they think that she is actually a good candidate for president, they're just crazy. They're just lying to themselves. And the fact that Bernie Sanders was the best that they could come up with to put up against her, just, it's like Democratic Party suicide. And they're basically handing the whole thing to Trump on a silver platter right now, I think. Uh, yeah, or to Jeb or whoever, if they give it to Hillary. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. 
and they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Robertson at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, y'all. Welcome to the show. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Here on the Liberty Radio Network. All right. Uh, boy, I better start clicking on the right links here. Uh, our first guest today is Rachel Levinson Waldman. She is the senior counsel to the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program at uh, New York University's School of Law. And uh, I can't read you the rest of her bio because it would take uh, the time that we need for this entire interview. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Rachel? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, very good to have you back on the show here. And uh, so there's this very important article that I had overlooked last summer, and uh, I'm very happy to have you on uh, here to talk about it. The article was at uh, Just Security, JustSecurity.org, Armed Drones and the Influence of Big Business on Police Surveillance Technology. And uh, great the way all that is in just the headline right there. <laughs> Uh, that, <laughs> that's to tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think, it, did I read you right here that when North Dakota took up the uh, legislation, what they meant to do was to ban the use of weapons on drones and in, in their use by police against the people of North Dakota. That was the reason that they started in the first place, but then it all got turned around. Yeah, this is such an interesting example, both of the impact of private industry and sort of the, you know, legislative sausage making that goes on. So you're exactly right that the initial aim of this bill was to prevent armed drones flown by anyone flying overhead in North Dakota. That was the original intent. That was the original text of this bill. Um, but then um, some lobbyists um, got involved, um, including the police association lobbyists and kind of involvement from local business interests. And so what ended up being removed from that was a ban on law enforcement using armed drones. So everyone else was still prevented from it, um, but law enforcement was not. And when we talk about armed here, you know, we're not talking about literally uh, drones with guns, but lots of quote-unquote less-than-lethal weapons, so tasers, pepper spray, rubber bullets, things like that, which can still pack a pretty heavy punch. Yeah, I mean, especially rubber bullets. They're bullets with rubber coating on them. I guess sometimes they're steel instead of lead to make them a little lighter or something like that. But uh... And even tasers. You know, there's a list of people killed by law enforcement, and people killed by tasers are on that list. So, you know, even some of the ones that seem, you know, painful but a little more innocuous in some ways uh, can also have pretty significant consequences. Mm -hmm. Well, and, of course, the other thing is once you tell the deputy sheriff that here's your drone, go find out, you know, if you can figure out a way to use it somewhere, they're going to find a way to use it. <laughs> and that was yeah. the thing with I don't think anybody told them that they could, the, the city council or anybody else. Maybe there was a policy decision made inside the Austin Police Department, but I believe here in Austin, Texas, uh, APD w were the first to deploy a drone uh, during surveillance while they were preparing a raid on a house, and they sent the drone mm -hmm. up ahead to, to show them the way. It wasn't armed yet at that point, but, you know, if it's up to them, they'll bring them with them everywhere they go, right? right I mean, that's, Use them whenever I, they can. Know, I, right, and I think that's one of the concerns, that mostly sort of the drone use that we've seen so far, and that's getting covered, is mostly in sort of what 
seem to be emergency circumstances, although certainly not always. And I think one of the concerns is that, you know, all surveillance technologies are rolled out for emergencies. They're rolled out ostensibly for national security purposes, for counterterrorism, but they become cheaper and cheaper. They become easier and easier to use. A police department has a drone, and boy, it would be super helpful to use it in lots of other circumstances. And then it becomes used a lot more, either just in circumstances for which it wasn't originally intended or to to track protesters, to watch people, you know, exercising their First Amendment rights, things like that. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing of it, right, is any of us can think of a thousand reasons why you would want cops and other first responders to have drones. If they're looking for a missing kid and they can put the the heat sensor out there in the woods, we all just read, right, maybe this was in England, but... Same thing, their media is ours now about the little boy who got lost in the woods and died out there of exposure. If only they had some drones. Uh, and that's true, right? I mean, it makes sense. And, right. but, and yet that I, means we're going to live in a world where these things are just living in our skies all day long. There's nothing we can do about it forever. Well, you know, I think there may be some in between because a lot of people are calling for some sort of warrant requirement to put a drone in the air or to use the data that's collected from a drone. But any warrant requirement, constitutionally, there's going to be exceptions for exigent circumstances. So if a police department has a drone and they are generally kind of circumscribed by this warrant requirement, they have to go to a court and say, you know, we're going to, we have probable cause to believe that using this drone um, will get information that's, you know, relevant to a crime or suspected crime. There is always going to be an exception for basically imminent danger to life and limb. So the the idea is that if there's somebody out there, as you say, who is in immediate danger of dying from exposure, there's, you know, some sort of domestic incident um, where there's, you know, really immediate danger, as, as a practical matter and as a constitutional matter, the police are going to be able to put that drone up in the air anyway. And so in some ways, it's a little bit of a red herring because you can have both. Mm-hmm. You can have pretty strong protections. And still, if the police department have the drone, and obviously that's sort of step one, we may not want them to have one. But if they do, they can use it in cases of true emergencies. Right. Well, you know, the other thing is here, too, is a big part of why cops are so quick to kill everybody now is because the training has changed from protect the suspect's rights to protect yourself at all costs and you know that you know officer safety or whatever you know their code words are for and forget you and so it seems like once they all have these things and they're shooting beanbags from shotguns with them well what about a truly dangerous situation you're saying that if somebody is a real uh, you know, danger to life, that that's when we definitely should not use a drone and instead sacrifice one of our deputy sheriffs? No way. That's the best time to send in a drone, an armed one. Give it an AR-15 and go take out those bad guys without endangering the life of the law enforcement officer, as they say. Right. No, I think that is probably, you know, to, to the extent that we're moving into a world where there actually are armed drones whatever it is that they're armed with, whether it's truly lethal or sort of quote-unquote less than lethal, I think you're right that that's going to be a really powerful argument because, needless to say, that's the argument that is very much um, sort of winning overseas, right? That's why we're deploying so many drones overseas is sort of this notion of it provides, you know, our military, our soldiers with safety. You can, you can, uh, you know, kind of pilot and control all these things 
remotely, we're not in any danger. Um, also, needless to say, there's a lot coming out about the inaccuracy um, of the drones and the inaccuracy of the decisions that are being made. Right when you're operating remotely, there's only you know the, the the judgment calls that you're making are different. There's less that you can see about okay who's actually involved. So I think you're right that if we're moving into this world, it will be very tempting to use them to, to protect the officer's safety. But you have exactly these same concerns, and so much more so because we're on domestic soil. We're talking about a police community relationship, not a military relationship in which what the police are supposed to be doing is, in fact, primarily a protective role, right, not an antagonistic role. And certainly having armed drones piloted by law enforcement flying through the air really tips that model, I think, even more than we've seen already. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, and it's just, you know, with the the different technologies as they're adopted, it's always a double-edged sword, right? So they introduce the taser to say, well, this is less lethal, so they can use it instead of a gun. And so they can win and, and take so, you know take someone into custody without taking their life. And that's great. Except it's also an alternative to a good punch in the face or maybe a nightstick to the back of the knee. And sometimes right. is, you know, and, and so is, is easier to resort to when the cop wouldn't have reached for his gun in that situation before he might have just knocked the guy down or something like that mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. it always becomes easier and easier and of course it's a lot easier to kill somebody with a drone than it is with a bayonet or it is with a uh you know a, a, a gunshot at point blank range but anyway i'm sorry we gotta take this break we'll be right back with rachel levinson waldman right after this Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code ScottHorton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. (laughs) <laughs> All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I'm talking with Rachel Levinson-Waldman from the Brennan Center about the drones in our skies and, well, the ones under police control, most importantly here, um, the evolution of technology and as it's implemented. And I swear uh, some of the things you say there sound exactly like uh, right out of Technopoly by Neil Postman about how, hey, once these things become cheap enough to implement, they are implemented. And there's, you know, as he put it, there's nothing left in our culture that can withstand the onslaught anymore. As soon as the gadgets can be ubiquitous, they will be, no matter what they are, uh, even if they'll destroy every last bit of our privacy and freedom. And that seems to be where we're at. And then I love the whole banality of it, uh, where... You know, they're they're trying to ban the thing. And then a couple of lobbyists from a couple of businesses show up and say, yeah, but we'd really like to go on the dole. And so then the government, in this case of North Dakota, says, oh, well, in that case, then sure, by all means, arm up 
uh, police drones in North Dakota, and again, with less than lethal, so-called less than lethal weapons. But still, that's really what it's all about, huh? Just a couple of lobbyists, drop a couple of quarters on the floor, and we're done. Well, you know, who knows kind of, you know, what the intent was or if there's, you know, if there was a mercenary, you know, people wanting to then go back to private industry and make money. Certainly, I think this example shows that the private industry lobbying has some significant clout, right? And that the people who are going from these surveillance technology manufacturers, their main driver is their company, right? It's the company, it's the shareholders, it's whoever's owning it. They are working off the assumption that the more of these they can manufacture, the more they can sell, the more they're used, the better, And if there are restrictions on how they can be used, if there are restrictions on their capabilities, then that's not good for business, right? They don't necessarily have um, kind of the the public trust um, in mind. That is not to say that they are intentionally acting in antithetical ways to the public trust, but that's simply not their motivation, right? right? And so they then go and lobby on these issues and, and end up having some, you know, in some cases, a pretty significant impact. Yeah, so that's the whole, that's the key to the whole thing. This is not quote unquote corruption. This is the system. This is how it works. If you're in business, you lobby for the government to give you money to sell them stuff at high prices if you can. That's what you got to do. And, and if the democracy is going to stop you by, uh, lobbying the other way, well, then let them. It's all fair game, but that's the way it goes. It's not even considered to be corrupt, even though if the same thing was going on in Afghanistan, you would go, well, that's corruption. Well, and I think one of the main issues here, right, I mean, to some extent you could say, okay, look, this is all sort of on the up and up. If it's all transparent, then anyone can go and lobby, right? So a drone manufacturer can go and lobby, and a group of citizens can go and lobby. The legislators make their their decision about sort of, you know, what what the best uh, move, what the best decision is. I think one of the issues here, and this isn't necessarily so much in the drone context, but thinking about some other surveillance technologies, is how little transparency there is. Um, so there's uh, a kind of surveillance technology that's usually called a stingray. It's a way to collect a lot of information about people's cell phone calls, not usually the content of the call, usually information about, you know, where is somebody making a call, trying to identify somebody that you can't otherwise identify, trying to figure out who they're calling and when, things like that. Um, and one of the big scandals really has been how little information has come out about this. There are non-disclosure agreements between the manufacturer of those, um, and then when the FBI shares them with local and state um, law enforcement, with police, they're often saying, please don't reveal anything about this, including to the courts. And so then judges are approving orders for these surveillance technologies to be used, literally not even understanding what it is that they're sanctioning because there's not enough information out there. And I think when you have that level of kind of opaqueness, when we're talk about, talking about pretty significant, pretty strong surveillance technologies, that is a real concern. And that very much also, you know, ties into the, the role and the power that private industry has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and wasn't there even a case uh, in New Jersey or somewhere in the East uh, where they dropped a major case rather than follow the judge's order to explain their use of the stingray? That is, uh, yeah. well, I guess we'll just let this guy go then, judge. Forget you. 
Right, no, exactly, and that's been one of the pieces. And the FBI literally has they, – they are now saying that they didn't direct this, but based on documents that have come out via Freedom of Information Act request, it, it seems that they did. But the FBI had said to local and state law enforcement, you can use these devices. Um, please describe them in a certain way. They were describing them kind of under the name of another kind of information collection. And if it really gets to it, and if either the judge is really pressing you or if you would have to disclose something to defense counsel, drop the case, right? So it is more worth it to us to potentially even let somebody go who should, you know, who, who, who should be a defendant, who should be a defendant in a criminal case. It is more worth it to us to let them go than to have the existence and the scope of these surveillance technologies basically see the light of day and really be kind of weighed and examined by the courts and by the public. Hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds like they're, they think they know they've been breaking the law, and for some reason they're unreasonably worried that they could somehow be held accountable for that. But Well, and it's in one of the difficult pieces, you know, that the law is really trying to catch up with these technologies. So the, the sort of specifics of, you know, what kinds of information is it that the technologies are getting, so especially something like the Stingray. Certainly, if the government were doing something like wiretapping and actually listening in on somebody's conversations without a warrant, 100%, that would be against the law. Some of these are in gray areas, and the courts are really catching up. They are starting to understand much, much more about what they are, how they're used, um, and sort of their 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 power. And so recently you are starting to see judges really pushing back against the government and saying, we understand about more, more about what these are. You have to disclose much more about them, and you have to have very stringent protections in place in terms of what you're collecting, how it's used, how long it's kept, who it's shared with, because otherwise we really have no assurance that it's going to be used properly and that it's not just pulling in tons of data that's going to be kept really to be sifted through, and data not just about the particular sort of target, and criminal defendants have very strong protections under the Fourth Amendment, but also innocent people's data that's just going to be sort of swept up in the same process. Right. Yeah, and, you know, that's a real sad irony, too, is that it's really the uh, human rights activists who have pushed, and including me, you know, and and maybe Mm -hmm. you, uh, to have body cams on these cops to try to protect the citizenry from their brutality, that if they believe that there's the slightest chance of accountability, maybe they'll dial it down a notch or two. And yet it won't be long if it's not already the case that these cameras will have the ability to do facial recognition of everybody on the sidewalk and download that, you know, uh, upload that into the database all day long. And, and you know, the that body cam will be a double-edged sword. It'll help protect us from the cops a little bit, but it'll give them a lot more ability to invade the rights of all of us. You know, you can't go outside. You can't be part of a crowd without that being on your permanent record somewhere, you know? Right. No, and I think that really is one of the sort of concerns and tensions about body cameras is that, they could, and they already have in some cases played a really significant role when it comes to accountability and transparency, right? I mean, there are, there are indictments, there are criminal convictions now of police officers based on something that was captured on a body camera. You know, there's one story that an officer and his colleagues were given, were giving, and another story that actually comes out through the video. And so that, that is incredibly important. On the flip side, as you say, there are these privacy concerns, right? So there are other people who are walking by who are going to be captured on the body camera. 
An officer walks into somebody's house wearing a body camera. What happens then? An officer goes to a demonstration and is capturing that video. And then as you say, then it's a question of, well, okay, how much video is there? How long is it kept? And then really are you applying things like facial recognition technology? Because it's one thing to say, well, we have a 1,000 hours of video. You know, in theory, we could have somebody sit down and watch it, but that's not really practical. Where are you going to use it? It's a very different matter with powerful facial recognition technology, which is, you know, very much not only in development, but but really sort of starting to, to reach levels that I don't think we even would have thought of a few years ago to say, well, you know, we're, we're looking for this one person. We're looking for this one activist. Let's see it in the picture and see where we get a match. And that is incredibly powerful. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, the remake of RoboCop was just horrible. I mean, they took all of the cynicism out of the Paul Verhoeven version. Uh, but one thing that's very valuable about it is they show basically a near, f- a near future, well operated, uh, you know, software system for the integration of all the surveillance of all of Detroit where Every camera is all tied to the central database in real time. All all the different surveillance uh, technologies are all tied into the database and are instantly retrievable by RoboCop as he goes around the block and whatever. And so anyone he's looking for at any time, they they already the database already knows where they were at least five minutes ago or something like that. And and, right. uh, and it shows and point, real totalitarianism is, if you look at it that way, you know. Right, and it's it's a little futuristic, but not. Super, super futuristic. Right. There was an article a few weeks ago about a center in Fresno, California, um, and the idea is that when an officer gets a call or when a dispatcher routes a call to an officer saying, you know, please go to, you know, whatever, the, the 2000 block of K Street, um, that information is then fed through the system, and the, the person that made the call or the person to whom they're responding basically gets sort of a threat score, similar to how you would get a credit score. So I think it was colored. I think it was... Um, green, yellow, or red sort of keyed to how much of a threat are the officers going to be facing when they arrive there. So you could see circumstances, you know, if it turns out that that person has been the aggressor in, you know, 29 previous domestic disputes and is usually packing a gun, that's useful information to know. On the other hand, that that's simply information. You don't necessarily need a color-coded score to elicit that. The more concerning thing is to what extent is that score um, based on the neighborhood as a whole, based on who used to live there, based on other kind of ineffable characteristics that are somehow creating the score and could really change how an officer, who presumably him or herself is packing a gun and maybe, you know, coming with other colleagues, how they respond to that person, what their first instinct is, what the kinds of judgment calls are that they're going to be making. Right. Um, and they tried this out with a city council member um, and in, who had a higher threat score in part because of the person that used to live in the house that he, that he lives in now. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's sort of a, a similar, you know, having this wide-angle lens, but it's very opaque to the public how those decisions and how those judgments are being made. Right. Yeah, again, Neil Postman in Technopoly where he just talks about how, but yeah, you know, truth is a matter of quality, not quantity. And computers are stupid, mm-hmm. and there is no such thing as artificial intelligence. And yeah, they're tools, but it's just numbers. And 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 the whole outsourcing and the diffusion of responsibility to, well, the computer said that I better bring a machine gun to this guy's house tonight, or whatever it is. You know, you can imagine, the computer says you're not allowed on the airplane, and all these kinds of things things where the, the decision-making is turned over to computers just on the assumption that somehow they are the 
the thing. They are wiser than we are. They know what the truth is better than we can know. And and it's just it's a it's a a, a bloody cul-de-sac to head down basically. And as, and we've already seen. In fact, uh, Will Grigg has written about a guy who had he was on the record saying that he thought the government should have to obey the Constitution, and that gave him. Of course, he's a must be a right wing terrorist. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of Timothy McVeigh type to talk about the Constitution. What does he mean? So that put his threat matrix number three three points higher, which meant they came with a SWAT team. That was the only thing they had on him in his prior record, was that he had mentioned the Constitution as being relevant to what the government is supposed to be doing. Right, which is which is pretty incredible. And I think you're right, sort of thinking about, you know, not only is there much more sort of computer-aided decision-making, but that it in some ways it can sort of be sold as more neutral, right? We have computers involved, so it must be right. All it's doing right. is taking this data and crunching it. How can get how can it get it wrong? And as you're saying, there's so many ways that, that it can get wrong and ways that will be very un, very hard to unearth. Right. And I'm sorry that we're out of time. I can't bring this up other than the title that this this article that you sent earlier along these lines too. That's running in defenseone.com. Refugee or terrorist? IBM thinks its software has the answer and just down this rabbit or rat hole we go. And I'm sorry we're out of time. I got to let you go, but thank you so much for coming back on the show, Rachel. You're great. Oh, thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. Okay, y'all, that is Rachel Levinson-Waldman from the Brennan Center at the New York University School of Law, and we will be right back with Stephen Zunis in just a sec. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking... Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at Audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. And next up on the show today is our friend Steven Zunis. And uh, (laughs) this is funny. I just realized I'd lost the link. So I hit search site on antiwar.com for Zunis and Hillary. (laughs) And I got 2,930 results. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? Uh, pretty good, thanks. Uh, yeah, the first few here are Hillary on Iraq, Hillary's Iraq lies, Hillary's nightmare, Hillary a proven warmonger, Hillary's illiberal belligerence, the troubling implication of Hillary, the five lamest excuses for Hillary Clinton's vote to invade Iraq. This is the one I was looking for. That, that, that's my latest one, yeah. You must be some kind of right-wing Donald Trump-loving extremist to attack Hillary Clinton like this, huh, Stephen? It, it, it's, it's funny. I'm, I'm actually a registered Democrat. Uh, I, I think we're overdue for a female president, and I, I think she'd be less bad than uh, virtually all the Republican contenders. But having said all that, 
I do think it would be very dangerous, frankly, to have her as president. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's illustrated by her vote to authorize the uh, invasion of Iraq. And it's, it's been interesting to hear a lot of otherwise, you know, um, you know, liberal on foreign policy, you know, you know, people um, whose issue by issue would be closer to you know, Sanders or O'Malley or Rand Paul, for that matter, on, on foreign policy issues, um, bend over backwards to try to rationalize and justify her, her, her vote uh, to, to authorize the war. Yeah, it really is sad and amazing. And, you know, the biggest thing, of course, is just the attempt to ignore it. It's the same thing with Obama's foreign policy this whole time is, you know, the 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 entire partisan dynamic has yeah. really been working against us since the and, right and doesn't want to give him a... as, you know, as you know and I I've, I've been quite critical of many aspects of Obama's foreign policy we've talked about it on this show a number of times before sure but you know Hillary has been criticizing Obama from a more hawkish position you know under Obama we have bombed seven countries in the greater middle east and she says we need to reassert ourselves militarily in the region. Uh, she's been criticizing Obama for not being tough enough. Uh, and, and so that kind of gives you an idea of what we can expect in the Hillary Clinton administration. Yeah. Well, now, I was actually pretty surprised when she attacked Sanders for being weak on Iran in January of 2016, right, you know, what, four or five days after Implementation Day? And not only all the liberals celebrating what the one or second good thing that Obama had ever done was getting this Iran deal done. They were in the middle of defending it from the right. And then Sanders, he didn't say like, yes, let's invite the Ayatollah to dinner. He said, no, we should not open an embassy there tomorrow. But, yeah, should we tend toward normalizing relations? I think that's reasonable or something like that. And she went right after him. And I guess I don't know if there was a poll number drop co- uh, correlation to go along with that. But that seemed to me to be really lousy politics for a Democratic yeah, primary really, season. Really. I, think she, I think she's having a risk of, uh, of attacking, uh, attacking him the way she's doing. It's going to sort of expose to a lot of potential supporters where she's really coming from. I mean... Iran, you know, Iran is a horrible, oppressive, theocratic government. But they are a, they've been, the Islamic Republic has been in existence, you know, for, um, in, uh, you know, 30, I mean, nearly 40 years now. And, uh, you know, they are a, whether you like it or not, a, a major, uh, international player. They're a middle power. Uh, and, and just recognizing that reality that seems to be, um, uh, pretty reasonable. But, you know, she's just kind of, you know, jumping. You know, she's fighting, uh, you know, whatever she can, you know, to, to fire him. Um, and, of course, it's important to remember that uh, she uh, supported the uh, Kyle Lieberman Amendment uh, on Iran, which many people interpreted, and she was a senator, but many people interpreted as a, um, a call for war uh, against uh, that country. And, uh, you know, she's been you know, really, you know, you know, even though she kind of reluctantly went around supporting the uh, the Iran uh, deal, she's been bending over backwards to try to uh, you know, push her her kind of a hawkish line. And I just saw that incident where they had about um, a a uh, a bunch of uh, State Department, Defense Department, former State Department, Defense Department officials talk about how Obama's or that that uh, Sanders is 
weak on defense. We need some experience by Hillary Clinton. They criticized uh, Sanders' call for cutting military spending and the like. And uh, and ends up over half of the people who signed that letter have ties to military contractors. Yeah. It's just, I can I can understand her trying to cover her right flank in a general election. But, I mean, this is just, you know, presidential politics, not even 101. This is, you can't even get into the door to room, you know, to, I don't mean room 101, that's different. You can't get into politics 101 without understanding. You run to the left in the primary and to the center in the general if you're a Democrat. You run to the right in the primary, to the center in the general if you're a, a Republican. That's just how it goes, you know? I mean, it, for her to attack from the right, Never even mind what's right and wrong or <laughs> what's true. It just seems yeah. like really like completely tone deaf kind of politics yeah. on her part. But anyway, so let's get back to uh, 2002 because I think this is a very important point that you're making here. And mm-hmm. I'll use my words instead of yours here that she did not make a mistake when she voted for this war. It was a, it was a cynical calculation of what she thought was good for her. And John Kerry and Joe Biden made the same calculation that mm-hmm. they were not going to screw up and make the same mistake they did in 1991 and vote against yeah. a war against Iraq, which made them look like a bunch of sissies. And this time, George Bush was so sure that this is going to be great, they calculated that they would go with mm-hmm. the mood of the bandwagon for the war and get on it for their own gain and if all the iraqi people got to lay down and die or get exploded to death more likely they don't care and that was why and, she and, voted and for the war and the irony that i point out is this is uh, this is a, an excuse that people use for her oh she's not really this right-wing militarist who says the hell with the u.n charter and the nuremberg principles and let's have aggressive war and let us have these endless foreign military interventions no she just did it you know for for political purposes so you're telling me that a reason to vote for someone is that she voted to send 4,500 Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis to their deaths, destabilize uh, the Middle East. There's a huge reason we have such an uh, enormous uh, federal deficit and the cost of this war. And, he, and that you see that's a reason for voting for her? You know, come on. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, of course, it, it backfired uh, you know, in that she, she lost the, the uh, race for the nomination in 2008. Um, largely because Obama had spoken out very forcefully against the war, and she had been just doing the Bush-Cheney talking points. Uh, and, but, you know, the, the Clinton people are sort of hoping that maybe they'll forget it 70 years later. But, you know, we've got to say we can't, we, we can't forget this. We can't forgive this. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is a – and uh, I, 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 in this article, I go down a number of other points. The one is that, oh, everybody supported it. That's not true. The majority of congressional Democrats – voted against it, if the Democrats who had controlled the Senate at that time not crossed the aisle to support Bush, uh, we could have prevented uh, this war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was not, uh, and, you know, um, again, this was not just a mistake. This wasn't like the you know, Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1964, which got us into Vietnam, where um, there was no time for debate, no time for reflection. People thought they were just voting to give uh, President Johnson, the right to retaliate for a specific alleged incident, which never actually happened in the Gulf of Tonkin, and that he did instead use as an open-ended uh, um, authorization to get us you know, heavily involved in, in, that, in that tragic war. You know, she, she knew what was going on. You know, people told her. People briefed her. And here's the thing. 
to have voted for it, thinking it would enhance her political um, uh, uh, electability. She would have had to have assumed that we would be welcomed as liberators, we would find all those weapons of mass destruction and ties to al-Qaeda, she said we had. We would not be bogged down in this long, bloody counterinsurgency war. And they would be fool to think that we would be able to get away with it. Right. So, you know, even... Hold, if, hold it one second. Hold it one second. We'll be right back out with Steven Zunas after this. Hey, all Scott here. If you like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. We're talking ancient history, man. 2002 with Steven Zunas and Hillary Clinton's decision to climb on board the bandwagon for the invasion of Iraq. And um, on the first couple of points here, I wanted to ask you about this, uh, Stephen. Uh, you point out that uh, most Democrats were good on this, and I thought it was just a majority of the Democrats in the House were good, but a majority of the Democrats in the Senate were bad. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, no, no, yeah. The, the, um, the, uh, I talked about the majority of congressional Democrats. Right, I mean, right, all together. Add, uh, all right, the Democratic right. members of the House, sure. all the Democratic Senate, it's the majority. Okay. But yeah, it's yeah I just want to be clear on that. But here's the real point, though, is that Hillary Clinton was the wife of the last president. And when she was saying, oh, yeah, everybody knows this is true, that was certainly taken by the right and used in the media. And Bill Clinton, of course, went on David Letterman and said, this is great, and it'll be over in two weeks, and it'll be wonderful, Dave, and so everybody ought to get on board. And he, he made other signals supporting the war. But on the other hand, if she had tried to lead the opposition in the Senate and say, there's just not a case for war here, and I happen to know that my husband bombed the last of the weapons of mass destruction back in 1998 during Operation Desert Fox that he named after Irwin Rommel, the Nazi, um, then uh, and and we shouldn't be doing this. And I think that the rest of the Democrats should not vote to do this. And we should support the Levin Amendment that says only if the IAEA and the UN inspectors claim that they're not allowed by Hussein to finish their work first. Where she could have done it. She's huge, dude. Yeah. She's Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I got correct you. The MPs are already gone. 1998. Uh, but, uh, oh, whatever. no, of course. Yeah. I'm just saying. No, no, no. Yeah, I was just saying what she would have claimed, could have claimed. Yeah, it would have had an impact. And, uh, you know, she, she had to have known better. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, and, and, you know, this idea that one of the lines excuses her, I follow her say is, oh, she just, uh, you know, voted for this to get the inspectors back in. But Iraq had already agreed to have the inspectors return. They're just working out the final modalities. And the, um, uh, and again, the Levin Amendment would have covered that uh, without giving Bush a blank check. And so, yeah, yeah, there, there's really no excuse here for her, her, her pro-war vote. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is, 
And we do have to stop and remind people, and of course there are young people too who this is ancient history to them, but it's important, and that is that 150 million Americans or more knew better than this war back in 2002. So no one in D.C. has an excuse when they're the ones who have the access to the actual information. The 150 million Americans were just going off the obvious impression that... Here's here's this other thing. I and and former arms control analyst, other strategic analysts, um, you know, former you know, UN weapons inspectors all said this stuff about Iraq having all these weapons of mass destruction is baloney. But the thing is, even if they did have weapons of mass destruction, this is the other thing that I keep hearing Clinton will say, oh, she thought they had WMDs. Well, guess what? There are over 30 countries in the world right now that have biological weapons, chemical weapons, and or nuclear program with weapons capability. They're saying that, oh, we have a right to invade every single one of those countries. And, of course, we have <laughs> nuclear weapons and still have some chemical weapons, et cetera. Are they saying that some country has a right to invade us? Right. I mean, that's another rationalization I really have a hard time with. Yeah. Well, I mean, the best version of that I heard back then was, well, you know, Ronald Reagan gave them all the chemical weapons, so now it's... <laughs> It's our responsibility to have to go do the right thing and go make sure that none of it's left. When, as you say, of course, it was all destroyed back in 1991. Give us a break, please. But um, anyway, uh, and then, yeah, you know, what's funny about this, Stephen, of course, is that nobody's been held accountable for this. And I just saw a headline this morning. I forget where. I'm sorry. Where someone says, you know, you can't ignore the fact that the the underdog front runner types in in both parties right now are getting a lot of support because they oppose this war it's going unsaid that here even the republican base you know Donald Trump goes the Iraq war was stupid and anybody who was yeah. for it like Hillary Clinton they're stupid and evil well he's talking about his own base there and yet they're willing to take that because they're taking it as a promise that he's not going to do that to them again and get their other son killed you know? Yep. Um, exactly. Meanwhile, and Lindsey Graham is long gone. He's enough to send people to war in a, in a place like Iraq. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now, on the other hand, he does contradict himself and say, yeah, we're going to go in there and completely kick their ass and occupy the royal fields forever and stuff like that. So, But anyway, it's just the point being that, you know, where the American people are at on this and where she is, you know. Um, although I, I, I didn't see it, but I read on Twitter last night that one of the questions was, I guess, to Jeb, hey, we're still in two wars that your brother started. And the whole crowd booed. Like, we don't even want to hear that at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, um, and now, oh, yeah, on the supporting Al Qaeda thing, you have you have a good thing about that in the article here about how much she should have known better and why. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous that it. There's absolutely no evidence. The Pentagon itself said that there was no evidence. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we're talking about very, very different groups. A secular dictator like Saddam, these Salafi fundamentalist Islamist crazies, um, you know, they were killing each other, you know, and uh, for years. And um, the um, and, so, and, and really, it's funny. I mean, even people who bought the WMD myth, most people who knew anything about Middle Eastern politics knew that, that connection was pretty silly. Yet Hillary Clinton was the only Democrat, the only Democratic senator, who um, who repeated that line about Iraqi ties to Al Qaeda. I mean, hmm. and we trust her to be commander in chief. I don't think so. Yeah, well, you got that right. And now, even on the Iran deal, she almost was seemed like she was trying to undermine it. 
uh, before it got a vote in Congress, but in the time between, Obama had, had shaken hands with him and got his vote. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she, uh, um, she was in her, her role in this, interesting. I, I happen to know a couple of people who are in pretty high positions in the uh, Clinton White House. And, you know, it's, it's interesting how historically the National Security Council tends to be a little more hawkish in the State Department, you know, that has to deal with, you know, diplomatic protocol, that kind of thing. And, but under under Obama's first term, it was just the opposite, that the NSC people were largely his appointees, who were, on one hand, very much part of the, you know, foreign policy establishment, but tended to be a little more innovative. They tended to have opposed the Iraq War, you know, a little more, a little more less interventionist, with one or two exceptions. But then, with Clinton, she, in return for being Secretary of State, she got to appoint a lot of her own people, which are mostly holdovers from her husband's administration. And so we had the opposite. The, 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 the State Department was the real hawkish interventionist, um, the hell with international law, the hell with, you know, getting bogged down somewhere else. And the White House was a little more cautious. The State Department and Clinton was, yeah, let's hold out and support these Arab dictatorships that, if, that their people are demanding be, be brought down. And, uh, and it was Obama who said, hey, let's let these democratic movements take their course. Um, and, and so, it, it, um, you know, she's, she's uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, again, uh, she, she's definitely on the hawkish right wing of the Democratic Party. And what's funny is that's that's definitely the case in Egypt and 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 in Yemen and Bahrain. But then she took the exact opposite and much worse stance in Libya, which was don't let events take their course. Go ahead and ally with Al Qaeda against exactly. Gaddafi. Exactly, she, she was really pushing for intervention there. And you know, what's weird is that I the, the I don't see. I don't frankly think there's much to the various conspiracy theories about the killings in, in, in Benghazi. You know that, that's Clinton's fault. But what the real scandal is is her pushing us to get involved in that war in the first place and, and helping to create the uh, radical Islamist backlash yeah. that eventually led to the killings in uh, Benghazi, and which have been causing a lot more uh, havoc and, and bloodshed and and uh, scary stuff subsequently. Yeah. And, well, and there are all different kind of accusations out of there, but it, it does seem telling, doesn't it, that in all the, the Republican scandal over it, the part they never talk about is the fact that the, the real worst decision she made, of course, like you're saying, is the war in the first place, but also stationing this guy and the CIA in the middle of a hornet's nest. And what were they doing in the middle of a hornet's nest? They were funneling hornets and guns to Syria to carry out the next phase of the war. And, you know, it's all in Judicial Watch documents and in her emails and all this stuff now about how, you know, she's in her emails talking with her uh, subordinates about the Qatari arms shipments and, and talking with Sidney Blumenthal about this. And the CIA was overseeing this, if not running the damn thing. And and that's what I like about it is, you know, the, you're right. Like they have the fake scandal or I don't know if it's fake, but it seems like. That it's overblown about the so-called delay. Like maybe it was one bureaucrat that said, "Wait," and they try to make it say like Obama deliberately hung those guys out to dry or something like that. But, but in the overall case, boy, did he hang them out to dry. I mean, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. And, you know. and this, this, this is a thing. And and and, and I, I need to leave soon. But just come around close on this thought. You know, sure. I, I've been traveling to the Middle East for over forty years, and. I felt less and less safe as an American each time I had visited. When I first went there as a 16-year-old, I could go to any country in the region and not be afraid about being an American. Think how that's changed. And here's the thing. People like Hillary Clinton and George W. Bush and all those, regardless of party, who support 
this kind of uh, military intervention, even putting aside the moral and legal arguments, they are making us less and less secure. Absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, Stephen. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, y'all. That is Stephen Zunas. He uh, teaches at the University uh, I got it right here. The University of San Francisco, Middle Eastern Studies, and writes for Foreign Policy and Focus. We'll be right back in just a sec. So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, we'll make a donation to support The Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom, the history and economics they didn't teach you. All right, guys, welcome back. One more. Next guest is Dan Wright from shadowproof.com. Welcome to the show, Dan. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Very happy to have you here. Great piece. Very uh, interesting, scandalous stuff, if you ask me. (laughs) Congress quietly kills ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Well, neo-Nazis in Ukraine? Congressional ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine? The killing of a ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine? (laughs) Whatever do you mean, Dan? Uh, Well, um... I don't know if people know this, but a good deal of the forces in Ukraine that the U.S. is backing, or at least tangentially backing in some cases, um, consider themselves to be part of uh, a long tradition of, I guess, white supremacy. And Actually, it's not even neo-Nazis. In some cases, they trace it actually to the Nazis. Um, And some of these, they call themselves battalions, have been incorporated into the defense forces that are being trained and equipped by the U.S. military as part of NATO. One of those uh, battalions is named the Azov Battalion, and it's led by a guy, <laughs> um, uh, Bilecki, who is openly uh, he's openly a white supremacist. He's uh, you know led uh, rallies or gangs really to beat up uh, black immigrants in Kiev. So not surprisingly, when this information came to light that these were being trained by U.S. forces, um, Congressman Conyers and Congressman uh, Yoho attached a amendment to the um, House Appropriations Defense Appropriations Bill say, through voice vote. It passed, saying we can't, we don't want to arm these people. They actually left a warning saying this would be just like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, according to Conyers, because once the battle's over, they're not going to leave the battlefield. They're going to keep their weapons. So it passed, and uh, apparently, somewhere along the line, uh, the Pentagon lobbied successfully to have it removed meaning, and they used a very weird argument, or I think a dishonest argument, that it was redundant because there's already a a provision not to equip uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists. But of course, if that provision had been in in effect, they couldn't have been trained in the first place. (laughs) So uh, they successfully got it out of the bill, so the U.S. can can at least legally uh, continue to supply and train the Azov Battalion, which is an openly neo-Nazi group that the only reason it was caught was because the Associated Press, among others, saw that their uniform actually has the Wolf's Angel on it, which is uh, traces back to its alignment with the SS. So <laughs> that's kind of a weird story. 
Yeah. Well, and of course, it was the, the Nazis of the right, spe- uh, the right sector and the Svoboda Party, formerly the Social Nationalists, who overthrew the Poroshenko government in uh, January of 2014 in the first place. Right. And um, so this is, I guess, the Azov Battalion are just, you know, one of the the many Nazi groups at play over there. But then, um, yeah, it's funny the way... Uh, I guess was it just oversight, or or they just deliberately averted their eyes when they let the military get away with this argument that the Leahy law already was good enough to prevent this? When, I mean, some of these congressmen must know that, as you say here, the Leahy law doesn't go into effect unless the State Department, who's behind this whole thing in this case, uh, certify that these guys are committing war crimes, which of course they have not certified. Right, they have not certified in their case. They have, I mean, in other cases, there's been really strong accusations with some of the other battalions. There's a battalion called the IDAR Battalion, A-I-D-A-R, that has been, Human Rights Watch has said straight up, this is, these people are committing war crimes in, in East Ukraine. So I imagine they would never, the State Department would try there. So, but yeah, the State Department refuses to do it already. And so the, the funding and arming will continue to go on. If they were going to do it, they would have already done it. I think the members of Congress are basically, they don't want to really want the issue anyway, but I don't think they want to be seen as, quote-unquote, weak on Russia. So I guess they look the other way, and it was apparently, according to reports, the Pentagon that were the people behind the scenes lobbying to kill the Conyers-Yoho Amendment. So the Pentagon, I guess, has, has a relationship. The Azov Battalion, it should be noted, was integrated into the Ukraine National Guard, even though they still carry all their uh, Nazi regalia. So I guess the Pentagon likes the relationship they have right now. They don't want to change it and uh, got the amendment killed. Yeah, amazing. Congress went along. Yeah, and as you say, this is all in the AP and everything else where they go, hey, guess what, everybody? The Our army is now expanding their training from just the National Guard, which we all know is made up of nothing but a bunch of Nazis. And But now they're going to train the Ukrainian army, too. <laughs> you know, where all this stuff is just kind of right out there for anybody to see. Uh, if you're looking at it, but now, so here's, here's the real rub. As far as I know, and I admit I haven't really been keeping up in the last couple of few weeks, but the ceasefire has been holding, right? We have basically a status quo where many fewer people are being killed and America is now tipping or con- is now continuing to tip that balance back toward war and try to make it seem, I mean, obviously the effect very well could be that it will become, uh, in the eyes of the Kiev regime, easier to go back to war. Right. I mean, from the beginning, the U.S. position, at least, from Victoria Newland and other people, Ambassador P.F. and all the rest of them, is um, we don't want a frozen conflict because we think a frozen conflict benefits Russia because the coalition in Kiev is so corrupt and problematic and at each other's throats that if it's frozen on the east, the they were right, by the way, because one and ironically, one of the people who is one of the groups causing controversy are these battalions. And recently they had a shootout with police in Kiev or near Kiev. So they don't want a frozen, they want people to direct their anger and aggression towards the East. A frozen conflict for the U.S. position is not good. They want a war back on because it helps give the people in Kiev some breathing room, helps them unite the country, if you will, in a sort of nationalistic fervor against the, the invasions or perceived invasions in East Ukraine. So they don't want a frozen conflict. They want these people to keep go to battle. Unfortunately, the only people crazy enough to want to go in and, and participate in this war are 
you know, neo-fascists and neo-Nazis, regular people, as, as reported by Foreign Policy magazine, are dodging the draft any chance they get. They don't want to go die in East Ukraine. So I don't think the U.S. wants the war to end. They want it to stay hot. And so they're doing a lot of things, I think you could say, to exacerbate the situation. This is not a good piece for them. Right. Well, it's too bad we don't have Ron Paul in the uh, in the election campaign to talk about this, because what great fodder for politics this is, because it's the kind of subject that's so far outside of what is allowed in the typical discussion, and yet it's all so proven and undeniable and so scandalous. I mean, the the term Nazi, and but not being completely abused like the whatever that guy's iron law of people stupidly bringing up Hitler. I mean, these guys really love Hitler, and they say so. You know, uh, a presidential right. candidate, if Donald Trump or, or somebody wanted to hit Hillary Clinton and them over the head with this, boy, could they hit him hard. Yeah, these are not, uh, that should be, that's important. This is not, I guess, Godwin's law where Godwin's people law. were yes. And not only this, they aren't even really, I, I definitely recommend some of the great stuff over at uh, Consortium News on this. Oh, yeah. But Thank you, you for saying the, that. the roots of these guys, these are, this is not, you know, this weird manifestation of neo-Nazism in the U.S. This is the people who, you know, historically through their families, through through the history of Ukraine, actually do trace themselves, particularly through uh, Stepan Bandera, apparently, mm-hmm. to an alliance with Hitler's Germany. It's not It's not very abstract. It's actually quite vivid and historical and deep there. So they are definitely Nazi sympathizers and in some cases Nazi lo- By the way, it should be noted, Azov Battalion's own spokesperson, because they were confronted by USA Today, this is how mainstream this has gotten, how obvious it is. Um, they admitted at least 10 to 20 percent of their recruits were Nazis. Now, it's not even... It's, it's probably a lot higher than that, but I'm saying even if you're admitting that 10 to 20 percent of the forces you have under arms are loyal to uh, a Nazi ideology, that's pretty damning that we're funding and equipping these people. Yeah, got that right. All right, when we get back, we'll have more with Dan Wright about America's insane Ukraine policy, and he's got a good one on Yemen here, too. Hang tight. Who says Austrian school libertarians have to be statists on immigration? We should support government goons busting people's heads to keep them out of the country? Well, some have tried to make that case in the past. But now David Hathaway's hard-hitting new book, Immigration, Individual versus National Borders, refutes point by point every argument they've made. This is a short, well-written book that shuts down the closed borders argument once and for all. Immigration, Individual versus National Borders by David Hathaway. Forward by me. Buy it now on Amazon.com in both print and Kindle versions. Okay, guys, welcome back. Uh, I just saw it out of the corner of my eye during the break. Hillary Clinton on Wolf Blitzer. And at the bottom it says, Hillary, colon, I haven't been briefed on Libya. No, I don't know what you're talking about, Wolf. So that'll be a fun archive for us to go look up after the show. Uh, right now, though, I'm uh, still talking with Dan Wright from shadowproof.com, shadowproof.com. And um, we're talking about, uh, well, the Nazis, Barack Obama's policy of backing the Nazis in Ukraine and uh, their coup really beginning with their protest movement in November 2013 and on, eh, picking up from Bush's old Orange Revolution uh, program, basically, and um, how they've got us into this mess uh, backing the very uh, radical right-wing um, like uh, right sector uh, Svoboda and uh, the Azov Battalion. 
And um, so th- I guess I really don't know uh, what else to ask you other than if you wanted to comment on – oh, and I, oh yeah, I see you linked to this too. Oh, here's something let me say about this article. It's full of great links to great sources for all his assertions. I think you'll appreciate that. Uh, Congress quietly kills ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And he said at the end here, you know, there could be another coup. And um, I'm not sure if uh, I see your link here. I assume it's to Andre Perubi, the right sector member of parliament, who has said before, hey, I overthrew the last government. I can overthrow you, and you guys better look out for for me. Is that right? Uh, I mean, he's definitely a factor. I, I think there is a genuine threat. I, and by the way, this is uh, the establishment took a, a lot of weird lines on Ukraine initially. And they initially sort of pushed back against criticism. This is all Russian propaganda, anybody who disagrees with the official line here. And then what you started to see in these last, I think, few months is it break. So you saw, you know, Mersheimer, you saw some of the other foreign policy people saying, hey, you know, this is kind of – this. we are forcing a confrontation here. We probably don't want – obviously, Professor Steve Cohen over at The Nation has talked a lot about this and faced a lot of blowback for saying these things. And now, recently – there's been a kind of even greater conversion, if you will, or I would say realization. And there are people are starting to wonder that, wait a minute, what happens if these right-wing militias that have basically been off the leash for the last uh, year or so to go fight the uh, quote-unquote Russians in East Ukraine turn their, turn their ire on the government in Kiev, which is hanging by a thread and is already facing all sorts of divisions, and that reality is coming closer and closer to pop- or becoming it's becoming more and more likely to happen as there's shootouts with police from you know some of these right wing militias. There's open declarations like that that we can just overthrow this government. We overthrew the last one, and you know people tried to play this down, but the far right militias were integral into the maiden protest. They played a lead role. They were the people crazy enough, bloodthirsty enough, however you want to uh, think about it, to go toe to toe with the police. They raided an arms depot. They were having shootouts with police. I mean, this is a group of people who, you know, in fact, are actually angered by not winning in the East. They don't want a frozen conflict either, in fa- and they're turning their guns, in some cases, literally on Kiev for what they see as a failure to uphold uh, the Ukraine nation. So I would be very worried if I was a, you know, Poroshenko or Yatsenyuk or any of these jokers in Kiev right now, thinking, you know, what happens? Are these guys ever going to lay down their arms? And now that they're getting even better training by the U.S., I think it's kind of a powder keg. And a lot more people now are thinking, including I saw an editorial in the Washington Post of all places, saying, you know, this, this is, we got to do something about these, the neo-Nazis, the neo-fascists, the far-right militias, before they overthrow this government, too, in which case, who knows what happens next. Wow, that ran in the Washington Post, huh? Well, it was an op-ed. It wasn't Fred Hyatt of the yeah. <laughs> editorial. Yeah, it wasn't him, for Still, sure. But but he allowed it to run, I guess, though. That's something, yeah, huh? Something slipped oh. through, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe well, now, yeah, day. I mean, the thing is that um, they could get us into a war with Russia. I think the Russians have shown that it was all a bunch of propaganda that they were determined to... Uh, you know, absorb or whatever you want to call it, you know, invade and occupy and, and reuptake the Donbass region. They obviously have helped the, um, 
the uh, so-called rebels there resist uh, domination by Kiev, but even though they claimed ten times that thousands of infantry had come across the border, it never was true. But it seems like it sure could be. And if you go by the apparent, best I can tell, level of groupthink in Washington, D.C., which doesn't seem as heated, but it seems as you know, solid a consensus as any time during the McCarthy era, I guess, about Russia right now. <laughs> it seems like they could really get us into a war with Russia. If every single person in Washington, D.C. is determined to agree that Russia started all of this, no matter how it is they're reacting, then they could turn this into a real war. Right, and that's kind of the reason uh, they want to own that narrative so bad, because the, the reality is much more complex. The reality is, you know, you have Victoria Newland. I mean, people, they keep talking about, isn't Russia so paranoid? You have the Victoria Newland out there endorsing a movement openly, handing out cookies and bread, endorsing a movement that's trying to violently and successfully overthrow a government that is allied with Russia in Russia's backyard. The idea that that wouldn't be provocative, or the larger picture of an expanded NATO, when Russia and other countries said after the Cold War ended, why don't we have just a joint security agreement? And the U.S. said, no, nah, let's not do that. Let's just keep pushing east until we hit the wall. And they've hit the wall in Ukraine. And, and they, I guess some of them were hoping that through a show of strength, this is always very neocon thinking, a show of strength, Russia would just forget that they have this historical tie to this area. And they would just, I guess, let the, the U.S. and Western forces kind of were an influence take over their entire uh, sphere of influence. Um, I guess not. So right. I guess I guess Putin kind of called their bluff a little bit, and so did other people. And now they're they're, they're kind of at the point where they're trying to convince people that this is worth the fight. And the problem is nobody really agrees that Ukraine is worth American blood and treasure. And so they're they're kind of having to maneuver right now because there was a group thing. There was a a narrative that they've fought very hard to preserve, but nobody really believes it. And now that it's clear that that isn't enough to get their way, nobody's willing to take it to the next level, at least. I haven't seen anybody do it publicly. Maybe there's, <laughs> maybe people are lobbying in the back room, but nobody actually wants to send U.S. troops in and, and possibly get in a confrontation with Russia in a state, right, I mean, in a, in a state or in a position that Russia is clearly willing to defend. Or even support. So I think it's it's a total mess. Nobody wanted to get into this. And the more we examine how we got into this, the more it's clear that some of these people are way off the uh, reservation. I think Victoria Newland is unbelievably irresponsible and getting us involved in an internal dispute in Ukraine. And now I think it's it's going to be very tough to get out without just having admitted, which is something they really don't want to do, that we screwed up and shouldn't have been involved in this in the first place. So it's a real... It's a real standoff right now, and I don't know how it's going to work out. But in no way is this a good thing for us to be doing. And the stakes could not be higher if this gets really ugly. Well, and the thing of it is, too, is, um, you know, it's not just that, hey, look at the history in an honest way, and you can see how America really picked this fight. But if you look back here at at, you know, who's lobbying what, you basically have, you know, the neocon crazies who just hate Russia, I guess, because of what Trotskyists they still are in a way or whatever. I don't know exactly why it <laughs> no, is. It's, well, they hate Russia I mean, so much, but there's no one else yeah. who's with them other than Lockheed. And, you know, Andrew Coburn had that great article about the big party uh, they threw in Crystal City for everybody who's lining up for all the new defense contracts in the name of yeah. the renewed Russian threat. But all of the rest of us, we don't have a beef with Russia. The Soviet Union is long gone. Way gone. 
And important to remember is I think there was a genuine move to replace the Soviet Union. Because remember, the Soviet Union justified so much money being spent and so many, so much money, so much, and also from a philosophical perspective, if you're Straussian or whatever, that it unified the country around a great, grand, Manichaean good and evil. Right. And when that went away, they thought, you know, radical Islam would fit that role. They could replace it, essentially, with something equally as large and equally as, um, I guess, scary for people. And after Iraq, that's kind of all gone away. People have really kind of lost the taste for blood. I'm not sure they ever had it on the level the neocons had it. And so Russia is kind of the old standby. I think there's a lot of these arguments about Russia, it's, or the, the hyping of, you know, they're, they're completely in control of the media, or they're, they're spending billions. I mean, this is just, it's kind of ridiculous. And it's, it's a way to justify defense spending is really the undergirding, I think, uh, principle of the whole thing. It's, it's a way to keep them in power and keep their think tanks funded, mostly through the defense industry. But in terms of an actual existential threat, it isn't one, although they're doing everything they possibly can to put uh, the two nuclear superpowers, all of those nuclear superpowers, uh, head-to-head. But, yeah, this isn't really – nobody cares about this. I think that's the one thing they learned when they tried to really start hyping this up and did all these publicity stunts is that nobody cares about Ukraine in the United States. It's just not that important to us. And that was actually a talking point that came out of Republicans who said, Putin cares more about Ukraine than we will. Right. <laughs> and it's true. Right. Nobody well, cares here. And that kind of means, on one hand, they can get away with anything, or maybe when push comes to, to shove, we really won't support what they want to do there. But it could break either way, I think. You know? Yeah, I would say so, too. I mean, I think it's this is, I think there's some cooler heads that prevailed. You've seen this, by the way, this ripple through Washington establishment. The Brookings Institution had a major kind of back and forth where different people got into a major fight, you know, because it's uh, Strobe Talbot's the head of it, and he's a hardcore neocon. And some of the younger uh, scholars were like, this is ridiculous. Why would we risk so much of our security here? So I think it's it's kind of a last gasp to some degree, but it, it could still be lethal. You're right. <laughs> you know, it could, they could still do something really dumb and get us involved in something we really don't want to be involved in more so. So as, as much as they're losing power and influence, because the culture is changing around them, people don't really. Well, they've had, they've been chastened by ten years of blood in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. They still they still want to go for this. This is like the last hurrah. So I, it could go either way. I'm not so sanguine that this is going to blow over necessarily. Yeah. Well, and you know, you and I are in a bad position from you know. Don't name it after me, but it's another version of Godwin's Law where we sound like alarmist kooks to raise the very <laughs> real possibility of uh, an exchange of hydrogen bombs. That if the U.S. and Russia get into it, you know, this is not playing around once you start fusing hydrogen isotopes together and this and that. And yet, you know, that kind of thing just doesn't seem to happen very often. It didn't happen in the Cold War, so it almost seems silly to bring up. But then why do they still have so many thousands of them? You know, sure seems like a a real risk to me. Even if it's a small risk, it's a small risk of ultimate catastrophe. And it's a small risk not worth taking. I think it also is an important point, not just that we came close actually to it in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that there's this dishonesty going right now. So the former ambassador, there, Pfeiffer, uh, the current one's PI, the whole one's Pfeiffer, went before the House of uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee with Bob Menendez currently under investigation, and uh, other people there to say, you know, this is a, this is a, we made an agreement in this, the, I think it's a Budapest agreement. We we didn't put it in writing. <laughs> this is actually what he said. We didn't put it in writing, 
But we did tell them that we would defend them if Russia ever invaded, and we think Russia's invaded. And the, the committee agreed, and then Victoria Newland came in and said, I actually negotiated that. It was a political agreement. It, we never agreed to defend them. And she actually was criticized by uh, John, Senator Johnson, Senator Menendez, for saying, how dare you say we don't have a military defense huh. agreement with Ukraine. That's now, if we had a military defense agreement with Ukraine and the, and the, and the U.S. believed its own uh, public statements, the U.S. would have had to have jumped in because it would have been in a defensive military agreement. So I think there's not just there's we didn't, they never got into NATO, but they're willing to kind of lie their way inch by inch into this war because they feel it's so important. So that's already happening. So in, in a straight military conflict between Russia and the United States on, you know, honest or dishonest terms is still just as deadly and still just as much an existential threat. I mean, if it's, <laughs> there's a reason we didn't go to war with Russia during the Cold War. We knew it would end in a nuclear exchange. So I think these people are playing a very dangerous game and one that has, I mean, the risk of nuclear annihilation versus the upside of what? Uh, sort of very, I mean, even if you talk, forget the neo-Nazis for a second, which is proven, the people running the government in Kiev are amazingly corrupt, incredibly corrupt. There's mostly these oligarchs like Poroshenko and these other kind of skeevy uh, cronies running around and I don't know why we would risk what we're risking for such a group of pe- people who, in my opinion, are in no way sympathetic. Mm. So, I, yeah, I no, I mean, it. you know, J.P. Sotilli had, had a great piece about how, yeah, there are Chevron interests there and there's Archer Daniel Midland interests there. They got some some pretty uh, prime wheat fields and this kind of thing. But, you know, could Goodbye, anybody son. by <laughs> any stretch consider that America's national interest to to risk all this just for a little bit of that? So Joe Biden's son can cash in yeah. a little bit or whatever. I mean, that's ridiculous. So, uh, you know, the best thing that they could probably argue from the empire's point of view is, well, it, we don't really gain anything by taking Ukraine other than we're taking it away from Russia. And that hurts Russia. And so that's good for us on some whatever scale you're supposedly measuring this contest, you know. Well, this from, from like I said about the last guest, this is also if you read Brzezinski and every and a lot of other people, you know, taking Ukraine away is the death blow in their view of Russia. Without This is what Brzezinski said, the group Brzezinski, the old national security advisor. He said, you know, Russia with Ukraine is an empire. Russia without Ukraine is just another country. So for them, that's the, the point of this. It's to sort of completely, um, I guess, contain or restrain or, or destroy the ability to project power of Russia, which, I mean, is this really what we're... <laughs> I'm not sure this is an incredible national goal in the United States that, that warrants this kind of risk-taking let alone who we're getting into bed with, which are <laughs> neo-Nazis and corrupt oligarchs. So, I mean, th- this for them, this is a major, this is kind of the, the kind of coup de grace of the end of the Cold War, which that's why, you know, they didn't stop. When the Cold War ended, they kept expanding NATO. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And, you know, Ukraine, for them, is the checkmate. But I don't know how many other people really care that much about it or would even see a benefit to that. If you look at the problems in Europe right now, uh, is this the main concern? Uh, I'm not sure that that Ukraine has to join the EU. As far as I can see, the EU has a lot of its own problems that hasn't worked out. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a checkmate for them. It's a grand final conclusion for them. But I think for everybody else in the country, particularly the United States, I mean, who cares? Yeah, I mean, seriously, <laughs> average person, grab a globe and look at it, and then see where you live, and then say, ask yourself, what do you mean we must? control the heart of of asia <laughs> because of what 
you know? Like, they never answer that part of it. Why Alfred McKinder's control, the heartland thesis is relevant to any of us in our lives. Um, you know, uh, Alfred McCoy, the great professor, Alfred McCoy wrote a great piece all about this and talked about, you know, what our elites see as the ultimate threat is ultimate peace in Eurasia, that you would have a system of pipelines and railways and highways and electricity lines from Shanghai to Lisbon, and that what? I guess American politicians would lose power and influence, but it sounds to me like what they're saying is that the people of the world will get rich and have higher standards of living and be fine and what, maybe be able to maintain independence from our political government. But what do the American people have to lose in that? What kind of zero-sum game do they think we're playing here? You know, like this is the age of mercantilism. Um, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you could look at it that there are people with grand designs. I think in the intellectual community, particularly the neocon intellectual community, that's true. On the more basic level, at least from my perspective, is a lot of this is how do we justify our continued existence? And for NATO, this is a key moment because a lot of people, including what's interesting is the realist class of establishment intellectuals, people from Harvard, people in the Brookings Institution saying, why is NATO even still around? Why do we have this entity? And this is how NATO fights for its budget. And why do we have all this defense spending for an enemy that is, if they're terrorists in the Middle East, doesn't have major military assets? Well, now we have Russia. Russia justifies that. So I think there's a game being played to justify the status quo or justify the establishment. And I think that's a, this is a part of it on some peripheral level, that this justifies continuing this system no matter how obsolete it kind of is to the way the world has changed in the last 50 years. So I think it's, there's, there are definitely people with grand designs in Eurasia, the grand chessboard, I guess as Brzezinski said, and there's also people just saying, how do I keep this going? How do I keep, how do I justify the F-35, which is just this like huge trillion-dollar boondoggle? How do we justify NATO forces and, and increased military spending? How do we justify our think tank budgets? You know, there's no, how do we justify our Eurasia studies uh, section here? So right. I think there is a lot of you know, stakeholders who are trying to find a way to justify their existence. And for them, Ukraine is, is the gift that keeps giving. Right. Yeah. Hey, it was Lockheed, Bruce Jackson from Lockheed that created the committee to lobby for NATO expansion back in the 1990s. And you hit it right there on the head with the F-35. It's all just about the arms economy here in America. Anyway, I've kept you way over time. Uh, I hope I haven't okay. uh, wasted it. Uh, I think it's been great. I really appreciate your time on the show, and I really hope everyone will go and read this great article. Congress quietly kills ban on funding neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much. And that's it, everybody. We're way over time. See you uh, Sunday morning on KPFK in L.A.